Our sermon today comes from Psalm 25. Once more into the Psalms. And as usual, let's remember that the key to understanding any psalm, interpreting any psalm rightly, is really understanding the worldview that's behind it. A worldview that flows from knowing the Lord himself, who he is and what he's like. Uh, and so let's look at that worldview again using these questions and answers from Jay Sklar. I'll read the question if you'll read the answers out loud. First, who is the Lord? The God of steadfast love and justice. What does he do? He blesses and protects those who embrace his covenant from the heart while demonstrating his justice against those who rebel against him. When does he do these things? Often in the here and now and certainly in the world to come. So what should we do? Embrace his covenant from the heart while yet patiently, yet fervently for his justice. We hear that worldview here in Psalm 25 as David faces some concerns that you and I face today still. And like him, we can learn how to wait on the Lord in our everyday lives. But first, since we're coming to God's word, let's pray to him. Oh God, you have spoken to us your divine and saving words. Illumine the souls of us sinners to comprehend what is going to be read so that we do not become simply hearers of your spiritual words, but doers of good deeds, true pursuers of faith, having a blameless life and a conduct without reproach in Christ our Lord with whom you are blessed and glorified together with your all-holy and good and life-giving Spirit, now and forever and to the ages of ages. Amen. Psalm 25 of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me. For I am lonely and afflicted. 
The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O oh God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Whenever you are struggling with something, it is going to spill out of you somehow. And although we don't know the exact circumstances that he was facing, from David we hear three main concerns spilling out from his lips. Each one takes turns in the spotlight repeatedly in this psalm. First, David is facing pressure from enemies. Second, he desperately needs guidance in his life. And third, he's carrying a burden of guilt. And what we need to notice in these three concerns is how David deals with them. How does David deal with these three concerns? We, we need to see how he deals with them because we struggle with these same things today. We face opposition both personally and publicly because of our hope in the Lord. Around the world, Christians face resistance on many fronts from people who are committed to other ideologies. Uh, some of those people follow other religions and some are irreligious altogether, but still we struggle with how to handle opposition to us as followers of the Lord. Also, like David, we have the same need for guidance in this life. We, we often wonder, what are we supposed to do? On, on our journey through the day, we often come to crossroads and we wonder, which way? Which way do I go? How do you make those ordinary decisions? How do you make those extraordinary decisions? decisions. What's your starting point? We need to listen to David and learn from here how, uh, how to get guidance in this life. And, and then also, since each of us, like David, since each of us carries a burden of guilt, then we need to know what to do with it. Because if it is important to answer the questions that we have about all the problems that are around us, then it is also, it's equally important to address the problems that are within us. But how, so how do you deal with the sin that we each accumulate for ourselves each day? And this is where we can learn from David here, because his prayer shows us how to struggle with these things in a way that actually fits us as God's people. And so let's look at the psalm to see what it looks like to take each of these things to the Lord. So first, I want you to think about what does it look like to trust the Lord in the face of human opposition? What does it look like to trust the Lord in the face of human opposition? Well, to understand what we are and are not talking about, I want you to listen to David talk about his enemies. In verse 2, his enemies are the people who would exult, they would be happy 
if David was ashamed. Now, shame appears several times in this passage, and it's important to understand that shame here is not about blushing. It's not even about deep embarrassment because of something I have done. It's not about the wrong that David has done here. The, here the word is actually describing the paleness and the terror experienced by a person whose hope has failed them. You, you get a little glimpse of what this word is talking about uh, for you sports fans. Whenever you see uh, the, the, the shot that focuses on the face of a fan when their team just got beat at the last second by a walk-off home run or a Hail Mary touchdown, that look of just horror is the kind of shame that he's experienced, that's being talked about here. So David's enemies would be glad, are wantonly treacherous. That is, they do evil intentionally and recklessly. In verse 15, his enemies lay a net to trap David. And in verse 19, his enemies hate him with a violent hatred in this passage. And the important thing to see in the contrast is that David's enemies are not his enemies because of David's governmental policies or, or even his personality. They are his enemies. They are opposed to David because of his hope in the Lord, because he follows the Lord. They want David to be ashamed because they want his hope in the Lord to be an empty hope. They are wantonly treacherous toward him because their hope is not in the Lord. Their hope is in political power and military strength. And because they care nothing for the Lord or his anointed king, they will use every clever and cunning trick they can think of to steal his power, to steal treacherous. It means by any means necessary, they will get what it is that they want. Their hatred and their opposition are rooted not so much in David himself, but in what David stands for, which in the words of one writer is the conviction that a man must live by the... David's story is not short of examples of enemies who reject the Lord and hate David deeply. And yes, some of those enemies are from peoples outside of Israel, but there are some that were inside too. Saul, Nabal, even David's own son Absalom became his enemies. The, the treachery that they committed against him was a covenantal treachery because they knew who the Lord was. And yet they rejected him and David. And that tells us, that reminds us that enemies may be outside of the community of God's people, but they can be inside. They can be false sons inside the covenant community too. But no matter where the opposition comes from, in the face of human opposition, how does David express his trust in the Lord? I want you to look at verses 20 and 21 with me. David already sang back in verse 3, he sang his conviction that none who wait for the Lord shall be put to shame. And here, David expresses that faith by two things. First, he prays 
He prayerfully entrusts himself to the Lord. And second, he pursues a life of integrity and uprightness. First, he prayerfully entrusts himself to the Lord. Second, he pursues a life of integrity and uprightness. First, look at how he entrusts himself to the Lord praying. Guard my soul. Deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. Now, in recent weeks, we have talked about how David refuses to take revenge on his own terms. He, he doesn't take vengeance for himself. He knows that that way, then and now, that way is shut for all those who follow this God. Instead, what he does is he relies on the Lord himself to guard him and rescue him. And he does that first and foremost through prayer. Prayer is still today our first response to human opposition. When those who hate the Lord, his ways, and his people, when they oppose us, when they attack us, there is no substitution for believing prayer. Because we know that the fight we're in is not really a fight against flesh and blood. Our enemies themselves, our human enemies themselves, are blinded to the goodness of our king and his kingdom. They're blinded by the ruler of this world. And so, we must turn to the one who David says in verse 8 is good and upright. And we, to him we must plead our case. This is exactly the same thing that Jesus did when he prayed in his agony in the garden on the night that he was betrayed. Judas's covenantal treachery was fresh. And the footsteps of the people who were supposed to embrace him were hurrying to arrest him. And yet Peter tells us that when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And in the same way, trusting the Lord in the face of human opposition begins with believing prayer. We entrust ourselves to the Lord who is good and upright, who verse 10 tells us his every path is steadfast love and faithfulness toward his people. But that actually leads us to David's second expression of trust in the Lord. Since David knows that the Lord himself is good and upright, David pursues a good and upright life, even when he's surrounded and attacked by his enemies. Look at verse 21. David's past and present is typified by integrity and uprightness. And he asked that the Lord would use his right behavior as the means of his own preservation. Now, that's not saying that he's relying on his good behavior to make all of his problems go away. But David knows that they are the right expression of his faith in the Lord. Look, you know that a commitment to goodness like David had, it seems naive it seems naive to the world. In the world's eyes, uh, living this way is like bringing a flower to a gunfight. You aren't going to win. And that's true. 
in a way, the weapons of kindness and sticking to promises, honesty, and patient listening to understand, these things are no match for the weapons of this world. The, the, the world's weapons of treachery and traps. But here you have to remember that the goal is not winning. Our goal is honoring the Lord who calls his people to imitate him, even as Jesus said, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. And so God's people then and now are called to express our faith by pursuing integrity and uprightness even when we are attacked, especially when we are attacked. The, the Christian response to opposition is righteousness and kindness. It's doing good to your enemies. It's praying not only for yourselves, but also for the one who is persecuting you. We don't return evil for evil, but we overcome evil with good. Peter told a suffering church the exact same thing when he said, This is the will of God, that by doing good, you should silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, he said. Love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Honor the one who is actually persecuting you. He said this because through this kind of life, we show our enemies what our king and what our kingdom, what his kingdom is like. We show them something of the beauty of Jesus through our willingness to love our enemies. And so in the face of human opposition, we express our trust in the Lord with believing prayer and good works. But that leads us actually to so many more questions. What does that actually look like today? What are, what are the details? What does it actually look like to do good to my enemies? Well, you know that this life is not short of confusing moments when we don't really know what we're supposed to do. And that leads us to the second big question that we have to answer. What does it look like to go to the Lord for guidance? What does it look like to go to the Lord for guidance? Is it encouraging to you to hear that David did not always know what he was supposed to do? I hope it is. But David trusts that the Lord who is good and upright, who always acts in line with his good and upright character, he, he does that by instructing sinners in the way. That's what he says in verse 8. Because the Lord is good and upright, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads people who are humble, people who are teachable. He leads them in what is right, and he teaches the humble his way. And in verse 14, his friendship, the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. And his friendship is expressed by making known his covenant to them. So David actually understands that the Lord is a guide 
He's the guide for his people who are in need of guidance. And that's why we hear him praying and waiting for guidance. Listen to David in verses 4 and 5. Augustine understands what David is asking in these verses. He says, In your truth, guide me. Help me to avoid error. And teach me. For, I, for by myself I know nothing but falsehood. For you are the God of my salvation, and for you I have waited all the day. For, Augustine says, for dismissed by you from paradise, and having taken my journey into a far country, I cannot by myself return unless you, Lord, meet the wanderer. For my return has throughout the whole length of this world's time waited for your mercy. You could maybe make the argument here. You could maybe make the argument here that David is looking for special guidance in a particularly difficult time. But his request to know the Lord's ways, plural, and paths, plural, it points us toward a deeper, broader desire in David to know generally what is the will of God. That is, David wants to know how to be. He wants to know how to live in accordance with two fundamental facts. He wants to live in accordance with the fact that God is the creator, architect of life. And second, he wants to live in accordance with the fact that David himself is a creature. Only the Creator knows the way that life works best. And so David prays to him asking for guidance. And so once again, prayer is the primary expression of faith. When we need guidance, when you need guidance, go to the Lord for it. And ask for it. Now, if you're like me, it's easy to, you know it's easy to pray about those big, important things in life. You know, job, marriage, you know, ch- children, that, that kind of stuff. It's easy to pray about the big stuff. And I would suggest to you that that is partly because we do want to do what's right. We want to honor the Lord in those things. But I would also suggest that there's a part of us that knows that in those big decisions, our happiness is at stake. It's easy to pray when your happiness is at stake. But in the mundane things of life, it's not so, we're not so quick to cry out. And that's where we need to learn from David here. Because I'm afraid that we've learned to pray from the pagans who search for irrational pointers to tell them which job to take or where to go to school. That, you know, we may look for omens to tell us what our fortune would be if we choose this path or that. But David, David's asking God for something different altogether. Do you understand this? He's asking God for something totally different. He's asking the Lord that David might know his ways and his paths. What that is, David is asking the Lord to provide him with a foundation for right decisions in any circumstance. To put it in the language of Hebrews, David is asking God for his for David's faculties, for his mind, for his intellect, for his heart 
to, to be trained to distinguish good from evil. To say it another way, David is not asking for specific answers so much as he is asking for wisdom to walk in the ways of the Lord. If, if he knows the Lord and he knows the ways and the paths of the Lord, then when David arrives at a crossroads, he won't have to agonize quite so much over his choices. He'll know that he does not want to go the way of sin. And he'll know that he is free to choose between any of the good ways that are there. And yes, he will desire to choose the way that most honors the Lord, but the way that he's going to make that decision about what is most honoring to the Lord is not, first and foremost, going to involve his own happiness. Instead, he's going to evaluate his choices in light of the, in the terms that God has given him. To be specific, he will wonder which choice will be better for his wife and his children. He'll consider which choice would leave him freer, more able to serve his church. He'll evaluate which choice enables him to use his gifts to do the most good for others. You see, his choice no longer has his own happiness in the center, in the driving seat, as the only metric. As he comes to know the Lord and follow his ways, he learns the paths of the Lord, which means he's learned the way of sacrificial love. When you come to a crossroad in your ordinary life, resting on human guidance alone to make that choice, it can leave us a bit, uh, feeling a bit like Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz. Do you remember when she comes to the crossroad of the yellow brick, yellow brick road? And she's wondering, which is the way to the Emerald City? <laughs> she, she stands at the crossroad, and the only help that she really gets is from Scarecrow. And he says, this way, that way. Getting, getting human wisdom, getting human uh, guidance is often like that. It, it sends us this way and that, and we really don't know. And that's t showing us the importance of doing what David does here is first listening to the Lord who guides his people through his word. If we pray for the Lord to teach us his ways, then we have to be prepared then to listen and to learn from him as he speaks through scripture. Now, that does not mean that you ignore the advice of other people, but it does mean that you have to consider the source of their wisdom. For example, if you need guidance in your marriage, there's a big difference between listening to a non-Christian friend who is simply speaking from their own experience of divorce. There's a big difference between listening to them and then listening to a mature believer, even a divorced one, a mature believer who is helping you understand what the Lord has to say on this matter. Now I have to move on, but let me encourage you here to pray with David for the Lord to teach you his paths. And then listen. Listen as he speaks to you through his word. His spirit uses the word to show us his ways. And the spirit also uses his people to teach us his ways. 
And when you hear it, when you learn it, do it. Humble yourself before the Lord, even when it doesn't make sense. Should we really expect the, all of the ways of the Lord to make perfect sense to us? Part of His being God is that His ways are different than ours. But let's move on to our third question. David has these three concerns. Human opposition, he needs guidance, but then there's this third issue. So what does it look like to lay our guilt down before the Lord? What does it look like to lay our guilt down at his feet? Throughout this psalm, David repeatedly refers to his need for pardon. He feels the effects of his sin deeply as he knows his sins have estranged him from the Lord. In, in verses 16 through 18, which is, which is really the deepest point in this psalm, he says, Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. Consider my affliction and my troubles, and forgive all my sins. David is a man who knows his guilt. And so what does he do? He prays for forgiveness. He prays for forgiveness. Once again, prayer takes the prominent place here. But notice that his request is not based on his own feelings. His request is not based on his own repentance. His request for forgiveness is actually based on the character of the Lord himself. He says, good and upright in the Lord. He says, according to your steadfast love, remember me. Don't remember my sins Remember me according to your love, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. He says, for your name's sake, O Lord, because this is your character, because this is what you're like, pardon my guilt. When David's laying his guilt before the Lord, he isn't hanging his hopes of forgiveness on his doing better in the future. He's not counting on himself at all, but from himself he turns to the Lord and puts his hope in the steadfast love and mercy that God has promised to his people. What he promised when he made his unbreakable covenant with us. And that's what faith still does today. When we know ourselves to be sinners in the sight of God, faith looks up to him and relies on him. We don't hide our sin. We don't pretend like it isn't there. And we don't put confidence in ourselves. We, we, we don't make promises about doing better next time. Faith lays our guilt at the feet of the Lord and asks Him, remember. Remember your steadfast love. Remember your mercy. David's trust in the Lord is, is expressed by patiently waiting on the Lord in each of those things. Actually, when you come to the end of the psalm, there's really no resolution. But still, David is content to wait on the Lord. He, he, rather than dealing with all of these concerns by himself, David expresses his faith by taking each one of these things to the Lord. And he rests at his feet knowing that the Lord sees and the Lord will ultimately do what is right. But if faith is taking each of our concerns to the Lord and waiting on Him, then why don't we do that? Why do we often confront uh, our concerns without 
patiently waiting on the Lord. I mean, here and now, there are many Christians who do not behave Christianly in the face of human opposition. When enemies of the gospel attack, it is easy to respond by going on the attack ourselves, wielding the weapons of the world. We, we shame people for what they've done as if we haven't done those things too. We withhold grace from others because we think we deserve grace, but they don't. Should I say that again? <laughs> because we think we deserve grace and they don't. We, we so easily want to change the world through edicts and force rather than through sacrificial love and service. Or when we're confused about what we should do, we, we will all answer that question of which way, which way do I go? We're, we're all going to answer that question somehow. We're always going to be listening to someone else when we answer it. We're always following someone's guidance. The only question is, whose guidance am I following right now? As I make this choice, is this the Lord's voice guiding me or is it someone else's? Have I given someone else's voice the place of privilege in my life? Or even when it comes to dealing with sin, we're often either trying to clean ourselves up in self-reliance or we're ignoring our guilt altogether. But the truth is that there are many ways to deal, that we try to deal with opposition and confusion and even our own guilt. But the solutions that we naturally seek all have one thing in common. They are all forms of self-reliance. That's what we do when, when deep concerns confront us. We rely on our own ideas. We go back to our own experiences from the past for solutions. We, we go with our gut. Or we fall back on the coping mechanisms that we learn from our families. The, the problem is, the problem is that none of those things are really from faith. And so honesty before the Lord and with ourselves, honesty begins with the confession that we are so often faithless in the face of these very real concerns. But this is exactly where the grace of God meets us in the person of Jesus, because where we fail, Jesus didn't. Jesus is the one who endured the hatred of those who should have embraced him. Yes, he had strong words for them, but those strong words were the words of truth and they were not separated from his love or his kindness. Yet through that opposition, Jesus was constantly entrusting himself to the Father, knowing that his vindication would come. Jesus trusted in the Father, knowing that he would not be ashamed. And throughout his earthly ministry, we see Jesus always going to the Father for guidance. Prayer was his pattern, often going by himself to desolate places to be alone with the Father. And the Father carried him along through the big and the small moments of life, giving Jesus the wisdom that he needed to answer his opponents, the wisdom he needed to show kindness to a widow, the wisdom to listen to the stories 
of little children as he welcomed them and blessed them. Look at Jesus in the Gospels and you will see what it looks like to be a person guided in the paths of the Lord. See Jesus in his full divinity, but in his full humanity in the Gospels, and you'll see what it looks like to walk in the ways of God. And yet, even though he walked perfectly in the ways of the Lord, Jesus still went to the cross to suffer. And seeing him on the cross, we see both the the burden of our guilt and we see the steadfast love of God for his people. We see what our sin deserves and we see the mercy of God who paid the price of our forgiveness with his own son. But in the fullest expression of the hope that this psalm points us toward, The Father redeemed Jesus out of all of these troubles. The Father redeemed Jesus, the the fulfillment of who Israel is, the, 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 the greater son of David himself. The Father redeemed Jesus out of all of these troubles, and he did it by raising him from the dead. And the risen Christ, the gospel tells us, the risen Christ prays for us in our troubles, promising that by faith in him, he will redeem us out of our troubles too. Because already he has dealt with the burden of our guilt by his own body and blood. And now, even now, he's guiding us by his spirit, using his word and in this community of the Savior. And it's Jesus himself who promises that no human opposition, no opposition at all, will ever put you to shame. And so we say that it's because of Jesus we can return to our trust in the Lord and we can leave all of these concerns with him. This is really the essence of our faith, is to entrust ourselves to the Lord, to trust him with our guilt and rely on the forgiveness that he has provided us in Christ. We can, of course, this isn't a one-time thing. We're going to have to keep doing these things as we patiently wait for him, especially when today you know, you know, you know that there is no immediate resolution to the troubles that you and I face today. But like David, we can pray And we can wait for full resolution. And we can do that with confidence. We we can pray, waiting expectantly for the Father to rescue us from our enemies, even while we seek to do them good. We can pray, waiting for the Father to guide us more and more into the way of Jesus as he conforms us to the image of Christ so that we might live in his ways, walk in his ways, even today. And we pray, waiting for the Father. We wait for the Father to finish what he began in Christ. To undo the works of the devil and to restore his kingdom to its sinless state. This is the hope that we live in. And this is why we call this good news. Do you believe it? Let's believe it together. Let's pray.
Father, we praise you for this hope. That in Christ you are redeeming your people out of all of our troubles. Father, thank you that in Jesus we see that it's safe to entrust ourselves to you. And so, Father, we ask that you would help us to follow in his steps. Against every opposition, in the face of every question, even as as we confess our guilt before you, Father, let us rest in what Christ has done for us, that he is the way and the truth and the life, and that we come to you through him. Father, in this hope, let us walk this week. As we pray in Jesus' name, amen.